Today, I have the privilege of continuing in this series of spiritual warfare. For a while now, as a church family, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, looking at what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how it impacts every aspect of our lives. We started the series a while ago, and we've developed our understanding of this spiritual war that we're in, who the enemy is, and how he works. One of the important things we continue to come back to is that our enemy, Satan, is very real, and his goal is to tear us away from God in whatever way possible. So in order to stand in this war, we're looking at God's word through the Apostle Paul to see how best to prepare. Today we arrive at Ephesians 6.15, which reads, And your feet sandaled with a readiness for the gospel of peace. As I begin today, many of you may be thinking, Yes! Finally the shoes! Now I was beginning to wonder when we'd get to the most important piece of armor in a war. Probably not. Um, but in all seriousness, we know that God's word is holy and inspired, which means that in his infinite knowledge, he intentionally chose shoes to use as the metaphor here. So as his ambassadors in this war, we need to carefully and prayerfully consider the meaning of these shoes and what the gospel is as we prepare to put on this piece of the armor. Today, my outline is simple. We will examine and think about the purpose of shoes. We will define at great lengths what the gospel is and then look at how it is a gospel of peace, and then finish by putting on this piece of armor as we prepare for spiritual war. Our first question to answer this morning is one that some of you may find odd, but I believe is necessary for our understanding of this text. What is the purpose of shoes? Perhaps it's just me, but throughout my life, I've used the word shoes as a substitute for footwear. If I said to put on shoes, I'm not typically asking that person to put on closed-toed tennis shoes or dress shoes. Truly, when I say shoes, I'm referring to whatever footwear you want, and if needed, I'll specify from there. However, unlike today, in the time this letter was written, the people really didn't have separate shoes for separate occasions. They had their shoes. These were the shoes they wore for every occasion. Going out to shepherd the sheep, put on your shoes. Going to kill a giant, put on your shoes. Going to deliver a message or get water from the well, you put on your shoes. You get the point. This may seem like a small and maybe even inconsequential point, but here it is the people would have understood that the shoes Paul was asking them to put on were for every occasion. It doesn't matter where you're going or what you're doing. Put it another way. These gospel shoes are to shape our thinking, our interactions, and our entire way of life, which means these shoes should be worn at all times. They should be worn at work when your boss asks you to do something contrary to the Bible. They should be worn in the classroom when a professor asks you to contradict or turn away from the truths of the Bible. They should be worn in our homes when our children misbehave. They should be worn in the hospital when a child is born or a loved one is lost. These gospel shoes are not just our Sunday best shoes that we put on each Sunday to impress each other. No, our gospel shoes should be worn day in and day out, manifesting themselves in every circumstance, thought, action, and life decision. You see, they wore these shoes in every circumstance because they served an incredibly important role. Shoes protect people's feet. Now, the protection of feet itself may seem insignificant, but how many of us have ever walked outside barefoot and stepped on something that hurt? I have. Now imagine you're in the middle of a battle and you step on a rock, the tip of a spear, or a fallen sword. That injury will render you nearly useless in the battle. The shoes protect our feet, and in doing so, help us endure in the battle. You see, when properly worn, and at all times, these shoes will prevent any injury from occurring to our feet. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ will adorn our feet and keep us from veering off the path to the left or to the right. The gospel shoes will protect your feet from the snares of Satan and the thorns of temptation, while the shoes of this world will quickly wear out from the losses and crosses of life. The gospel shoes will not fail you. When you put on the gospel shoes of peace, then we can endure in every situation of the battle, knowing that the shoes fashioned for us in heaven will not fail. We've established that these shoes will help us endure in every situation. And so now it's time to examine these shoes, which we are told are the gospel of peace. Our first step is to understand what is the gospel. If I asked you, what is the gospel? I expect I would probably get many answers along the lines of, it's the good news about Jesus. And if I pressed a little further, you might talk about how Jesus came and he died on the cross and rose the third day to save us from our sins. And you would be right. You'd be absolutely right. That is the gospel, but it's only a fraction of what you would have heard from the early disciples. It's not even half of what Stephen said the day he was stoned. You see, the problem with the short gospel that we often give, the short gospel I often share, is that it doesn't explain what sin is, who Jesus is, or why he had to die. And there's other questions, too, that it doesn't begin to explain that could leave a new follower or a non-believer confused. So what must we do? To answer that question, we must ask, what did the disciples do? What did the disciples do? They went back to the beginning. Standing up here today, I have to admit that I'm convicted. Preparing this sermon showed me how many gaps were in my own gospel. See, the gospel of Jesus, to be truly God-honoring, Christ-exalting, and biblical, is vastly more dense and not to mention more awe-inspiring than the gospel I typically tell people. The gospel of Jesus is so incredible that Stephen, while being stoned full of the Holy Spirit, looked up into heaven and saw Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So as the apostles and the disciples and the pastors have done before me, allow me to humbly share the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that phrase right there rests the linchpin of our faith. In the beginning, God created. See, right here it shows that God is our creator. He is holy and righteous and completely and utterly above all of his creation. Which means from that moment we know with certainty that God alone defines good and bad, right and wrong. And then we see God make people in his own image. And what do they do? They disobey God. We disobey God, and in doing so forever, until our union with Jesus ruined the relationship between God and man. That's the fall. That's sin. Now, the sin we speak of is worth spending some time on. We're all told and probably all confess that we're sinners. Many of us could even recite Romans 3.23, where all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's true. As Brother David once said, we're born sinners. No one needed to teach us how to sin. We do it very well on our own. But what is sin? Seriously, what is sin? 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. What law, you might ask? The law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai for the Israelites. But it's not just a matter of keeping some of the law, but all of it. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point, is guilty of breaking it all. 
So we know what sin is, but why is it so bad? J.I. Packer, a pastor, theologian, and author, said that the Puritans taught that sin must be viewed through God's law, God's lordship, and God's holiness. And thus, sin is a transgression and guilt in regard to the law. It's a rebellion and usurpation in regard to his lordship, and it's uncleanliness, corruption, and inability to do good in regard to his holiness. In an attempt to examine and explain and describe sin in this way, allow me to briefly summarize a book titled The Plague of Plagues, The Sinfulness of Sins by a Puritan author, Ralph Vinning. And he spends about 200 pages laying open the atrocity of sin. And in fact, it's his estimation that sin is so bad that the only adjective which to describe its level of evil and corruption is actually sinfulness. Thus his title, Sinfulness of Sin. Allow me to spare his death and summarize it quickly. He says, sin is the worst evil there is. Sin looks to God and attempts to defy him. Sin contests God, blasphemes God, and turns its back on God altogether. Sin looks to the creator with hate, jealousy, pride, and bitterness and says, I should be God. Sin looks to the holy of holies and tries to degrade and profane. And for this reason, Sin is more vile than any toxin or acid. It is more infectious than any virus or plague. And it is more deadly than any cancer. He concludes, brethren, we are infected. We are helplessly and hopelessly engulfed by the blackness of sin without Christ. Yet as if that were not enough, sin is eternal. Sin doesn't just ravage and destroy here on earth. Sin's wretchedness subjects us to the righteous and loving, just wrath of God. God in his infinite and uncompromisable holiness must, in accordance with his love and his just good law, punish those who transgress and sin against him. Sinners can have no place near, let alone with, our holy God. So, God sends sinners away from his presence eternally. That is hell. Now God is the source of all good. So to be away from his presence is to be in a place void of all good. To spend forever. If it sounds terrifying, it's because it is. What's scarier is that it's where I belong. As a sinner, someone who's both knowingly and unknowingly committed little and very, very big sins, I deserve hell. Think about this for just a moment, too. Today, the world talks a lot about privilege and entitlement and the like. But here's an uncomfortable truth for us. As human beings, sinners, our only entitlement, our only liberty, our only right is hell. Because that's what sin's punishment is. If you're uncomfortable, then you're not alone. In preparing this, I came here and looked over to where I normally sit. And I I tried to preach this sermon to myself as if I was sitting there and someone else was speaking it from up here. And and while I did, and even today, my, my heart's racing and my stomach's churning. My heart and my soul are wrestling with the reality of my sinfulness in light of our holy, holy, holy God. I feel the crushing weight of lust, pride, covetousness, anger bearing down 
I feel the weight of sin's shoulders on me. It's immovable. And as I feel it, my head hangs lower, and my knees sink deeper in humiliation and fear at the thought of standing before our almighty God. Do we feel it? The desperate need for a savior? Our nakedness before our creator, father, and judge? Brothers and sisters, what must we do? What can I do? What can a sinner like me do? Oh, church family, hear the words of the apostle. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the good news. God, in his infinite love, sent his son down to earth. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth walked the earth as a man, teaching and healing and performing miracles, all of which pointed to God and how he was the Messiah. And then, as was arranged and predestined by the Holy Trinity, Jesus Christ was betrayed. He was beaten, he was crucified, and he died. And in dying, Jesus took upon himself the full and complete wrath of God. Jesus substitutionally took our place on the cross, paid our sin debt, died the death we deserved. And on the third day, God rose him from the dead, conquering death and giving life in Jesus to his saints. Those who confess faith in Jesus, they confess their sins, they ask for forgiveness, and they repent. Brothers and sisters, that's the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, had to die. He had to die because that's the penalty of sin. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. Jesus died for us. It's what all the sacrifices always pointed to. Jesus was the Lamb of God. He was the Son of God. He was holy, spotless, righteous, blameless, perfect, pure. He was the only person who could ever eternally and perfectly satisfy the debt that we incur through sin. So in Jesus' death and resurrection, we have new life. We are dead to sin. And for this reason, for that reason, we must repent. Romans 2.4 says, Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you, to lead us to repentance. Can I tell you something uncomfortable? Something that might even hurt to think about. Recently, when I've been confessing my own sins, I've, I've prayed, I've said, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my sins by placing them upon your son on the cross so that he can pay the debt that I cannot. And then I realized the weight. I'm putting my sins on Christ's shoulders, which means every lustful thought and action, every sinful indulgence, every dirty secret pet sin that I commit, I am putting on Christ. I'm asking God to attribute them to Jesus and asking him to pay for it. Do you feel it? Every sin I commit is associating Christ with my shamefulness and asking him to pay for it. And every single day, I have to come to God and ask for forgiveness. I'm heaping sins, my sins, upon the holy child and lamb of God. Heaping sins on the God who lovingly chose to hang on a cross and die for my sins so that I would know his grace and repent and have life in him. 
and I do it daily. See, every day when we wake up, we are washed afresh and anew in the blood of Christ. So every day we must go back before the Father in complete disgrace and humility and ask for forgiveness in the name of Jesus once again. In Luke 8, we see the story of a woman who suffered from bleeding for 12 years. And she touches Jesus' robe and he knows and he asks, who touched me? Knowing that she's been found out, she comes trembling and falling before Jesus. She confesses. And guess what the Son of God tells her? Daughter, your faith has saved you. In the same way, if we are faithful to fall before the Father and the Son and confess through the Spirit and ask forgiveness, God is faithful and the sin will be paid for through the death of his Holy Son. God remains faithful forever and Christ's work remains eternal and sufficient to pay for sins. That's the good news of the gospel. Yet it doesn't just stop there. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most wonderful news there's ever been. Just contemplate how rich we are in Christ Jesus. To begin, we're told in Romans that we have both the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself interceding before the Father for us. Picture it. The other two persons of the Almighty God are interceding on our behalf before the sovereign God of the universe, the God who holds tomorrow, the God who has absolute authority in heaven and earth, is pleading and asking for our good, for our forgiveness, and he's watching over us. And furthermore, it's in this intercession through our eternal priest Jesus that we are lavishly blessed with the ability to pray to call on the name of the Lord God, knowing that his loving and listening ear is turned to hear us. Beloved church family, truly the wealthiest people on earth are those who know Christ. Because we can say alongside the Apostle Paul that we consider all things to be nothing, dung, compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Yet our richness in Christ is at its fullest in our hope for heaven. If I'm honest with y'all, God's been stirring my heart on this topic since my sermon last year. Last year I asked us, why do we want to go to heaven? And I said, we want to go to heaven because it's where God is. You see, it doesn't get any better than that. God is the source of all good, all beauty, perfection, rest, peace, comfort, and he brings it all together in perfect harmony through his presence. Just imagine it. Some glad morning when this life is over, we will fly away to our home on God's celestial shore. We will fly away. And just imagine it. We will spend forever there. No longer burdened and weary from sin. No longer will we feel the shame and disgust from our sin. No longer will this flesh and blood body be slowly dying. No longer will the worries of this world grieve us. No longer will we endure the agonizing pain of this spiritual war. Brothers and sisters, we look forward to a day when we take off the armor of God, when the victory in Jesus is ushered in and we begin to sing the song of victory. And guess what? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began. We will be in the presence of God. 
and we will sing alongside his angels, holy, holy, holy. My soul bless the Lord. His name is great and greatly to be praised. Hallelujah, Christ reigns. Hallelujah, Christ lives and he reigns. Hallelujah, all of God's people will sing. The Lord's faithful love endures forever. We will be in the presence of God. God, the Alpha and Omega, creator of heaven and earth, the triune God. Think about it. We will be in the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, our hope found in Christ, the wondrous hope of eternity with God is enough to make me want to sing right now. This is the glory of the gospel. It's the richness that we share in Christ. Brothers and sisters, there is nothing more sweet or more desirable or beautiful than Jesus Christ and his gospel. But the reason for the beauty is twofold, as we've seen. Yes, the gospel of Jesus is beautiful because it displays God's love and his kindness and his goodness and his glory and his holiness. It is a delight to behold. It is beautiful because it gives us a hope for heaven that is beyond all compare. But do not forget the other reason behind the beauty of the gospel. The other reason being the filthy, the black, vile, sickening sin that had to be washed away by the very blood of Christ. The beauty of the gospel is beautiful, not only because of its mercy and grace, but because of the ugliness which it washes away. Oh, church family, hear one more time the words of the apostle. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Now we turn to explore why this treasured gospel is a gospel of peace. The gospel we proclaim is the gospel of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Lord's Messiah. Jesus tells us that the whole of the Bible, all of God's word is about him. And it's culminated in his arrival, his restoration of God's people, his death and his ascension and his awaited return. So I ask us again, how do we know that this treasured gospel is a gospel of peace? Well, for one thing, Isaiah tells us, this Jesus whom we've established the gospel is about is the Prince of Peace. But let us explore it further. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And it means more than just what we think of as peace today. It also means completeness. Imagine a puzzle with one missing piece. There is no shalom until the peace is put in place. In the same way, imagine a father whose child is missing. There is no shalom, no peace or rest, until the child is brought back safely. Church family, we are God's creation, God's sheep and his children. And as sinners, we have gone astray, we are lost, we are wounded, and we are in a very dire situation. God is our loving Father, and there is no shalom, no peace, until his people are brought back into a relationship with him again. Jesus gives us many beautiful parables where he displays and explains how he is the one who brings shalom. Think first of the vine, which Jesus grafts into the tree, or again of the lost sheep whom he seeks. See, Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. He gave his life up for the sheep. Jesus Christ is the Holy Son of God. He sought us and bought us with his redeeming blood. 
so that he could bring us back into the flock of God where he will look after us through now and then endless days. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation upon whom our relationship with God rests. God loves us. We are his creation. And although he himself is the source of all honor and glory and contentment that he deserves, he chose us. Zechariah 8.8, 8, God says, they will be my people and I will be their faithful and righteous God. Do you hear that? They will be my people. God claims us, chooses us, and calls us his own, and he is jealous over us. He did it for his glory, but he did it for us. God, in his infallible and incomprehensible wisdom, brought forth shalom through the death and resurrection of his son, and the gospel is the story of how he did it. The gospel of Jesus of Nazareth is the gospel of peace because it tells sinners how to be reconciled, how to have shalom with God Almighty. Go back to that situation of the father with the lost child. We just looked at the absence of peace for the father and how God the father restored that. Now we think about the child. For a while, they're probably pretty happy. They're consumed in whatever distraction it was that tore them from the Father. They have no idea that they're lost and missing. Beloved church family, this is us. As children, we have wandered away, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes deliberately, distracted by the trivial pursuits of this world, by idols, passions of the flesh, or maybe even something good like family. Perhaps the child in this situation had a brother, and they've both knowing, unknowingly led each other astray. But here's the reality. Scared or not scared, there is no shalom there. We all know that children left on their own without parents are in a very scary situation. Every person who does not know Jesus is that child. And here's the hard and scary truth. Think about the situation. The children are helpless. They don't know how to get back to their parents. We already know what the father's done. The father has pursued his children. And in fact, he is standing right behind them with his mighty right hand reached out to save them and bring them back under his protection. In the metaphor I'm weaving here, there are two types of children. There's the children who become afraid and they begin frantically searching around for their parent, their father. And then there's the child who remains engrossed in the distraction, never once realizing that he's lost. God, as the sovereign and omnipotent God, full of compassion, has predestined those who will feel the fear. Romans 8, 29 through 30 says, For those he knew he also predestined to be conformed to his image of his son so that he could be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined he also called. And those he called he also justified. And those he justified he also glorified. In God's appointed time, his Holy Spirit will awaken the heart of the child and they will feel the fear of being lost. And they will confess, I'm lost. And they'll begin searching frantically for the Father. And Jesus tells us that whoever searches, asks, and knocks will receive, find, and have the door opened. God has saved us. And in his time, he will bring it about. So what's our role? Romans 10, 13 through 14 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How can they call on him whom they have not believed in? How can they believe without hearing about him? How can they hear about him without a preacher? Our role is to have our feet sandaled with a readiness for the gospel of peace. The gospel tells us about Jesus and about our need for him. How he accomplished everything he was sent to do. How the Lord God brought shalom. Not some trivial euphoria where everyone's in happy-go-lucky, dancing, holding hands. No, true peace where sinners are reconciled to a holy and infinite God and can once again be in his presence. In the letter to the Ephesian church, Paul begs them to put on the full armor of God. He doesn't instruct them to receive it and store it, receive it and admire it, receive it and study it, but to put it on. Church family, we have received the armor. It was fashioned and made for us on the cross at Calvary. It was given to us in the holy word of God, and we have admired it, and we have studied it. It is time to put on the gospel shoes of peace and prepare for the war ahead. Before I share the methods of putting these shoes on, I want to bring our minds back to endurance for a moment. As you'll remember, endurance is one of those things that the gospel shoes help provide for us. And it's an important thing for follower of Jesus, followers of Jesus in this battle. However, if these shoes are going to work properly, then we're going to be need to be wearing them. Which brings me to the word consistency. We have to wear them all the time. If we don't put these gospel shoes on consistently, then they will not be effective because of their lack of use. Shoes that aren't worn will not produce endurance in every situation. Which means that if we are to truly see the benefit of this piece of armor, or any of it for that matter, we must put this armor on daily, consistently. Before I go into the four steps or ways to help us put on these shoes, I want to provide a quick disclaimer. There is no special way or perfect way to put on these shoes and to implement these four strategies into your life. I could stand here and tell you how I try to do it, and you could no doubt probably read countless ways and books of how other people do it. But the simple truth is there isn't a perfect way. The most important thing to do is to begin and to be consistent in doing it. Furthermore, it should also be known that these things alone, these four things that I'm going to list, will fail to save us, and they are incapable of sanctifying us. However, I do believe that these are tools derived from God's word, and that God, in his infinite and faithful grace, Jesus, in his infinite wisdom and love, and the Holy Spirit, in his infinite patience and expertise, will use to draw us nearer to God and sanctify us. So here's number one. We must read and study and pray and commit to memory and think deeply about the word of God. Now, I know that that's a lot of verbs, and y'all are probably thinking, hold up, you said four things, and you just listed like six. I know. Bear with me. I do truly believe that all of those verbs, read, study, pray, commit to memory, think deeply, are important. And they should be applied to the word of God. And there is much to be said about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I am eager to hear how Brother Tyler will expound upon this topic through the grace of the Lord. So for today, here it is. Step number one. We must read the word of God. And why? Because it's the word of God 
that displays the very gospel of peace that we are going to put on. Number two, we must pray. Again, this is another topic that we're going to cover soon. And I'm excited to see how the Spirit will work in Brother David to teach us and encourage us. And so for today, I'll be brief. Brothers and sisters, we have to pray. We believe in a holy and sovereign God, which means nothing happens without his divine say-so. Not a leaf falls, not an ant crawls, without him orchestrating it, watching over it, and bringing it about for his glory. Which means we do not come to church, we do not breathe, and we do not sanctify ourselves or put on these shoes, these precious gospel shoes, without God. We must pray earnestly that God would be so gracious, so loving and tender to take our feet in his hands, gently slip these gospel shoes of peace on our feet, lace them up, tie them, and send us out into his spiritual war for his glory and his kingdom. Number three, we must be in fellowship with one another. You see, we're going to see a lot of people out there in the world. Very few of them will be wearing the gospel shoes of peace. Why? Because the gospel shoes aren't pretty. They're dipped in blood. And they're not comfortable because they require us to take up a cross daily. And frankly, they're not popular either because they require us to cast away the sin that we adore. So, while we're out there in the world, we're going to see a lot of people going barefoot, thinking they're a God unto themselves. They're fully autonomous. We'll see people wearing shoes of all kinds of fancy colors and expensive materials, relying on prestige and wealth. We'll see people wearing red elephant shoes and blue donkey shoes, thinking perhaps politics are the source of reconciliation for this world. We'll see people wearing shoes backwards, believing themselves to be a different gender than the one God birthed them with, thinking perhaps it's morally wrong to have children or morally acceptable to abort them and defy God's first command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We'll even see people wearing shoes dipped in blood, although it won't be the blood of the Savior. They are instead mocking us, trying to steer us down the wrong path. Regardless of the shoes they are wearing, we will see a lot of people who are not wearing the gospel shoes of peace, and they will be challenging us. They will be tempting us to consider casting off our old, rugged, blood-dipped gospel shoes. But when we come together and we see our shoes, we enter into fellowship with one another, we look down, we see the same shoes. We see, in fact, we are the same. No matter what job we have, struggles we face, wounds we conceal, scars we bear, sorrows we carry, we look down and we see that Christ has made us one. One body, wearing the same exact gospel shoes, fighting on the same side for the same name, knowing that someday we will share in the same victory. When we look upon our gospel shoes as we gather, we encourage one another. This fight is worth it. And we testify, these gospel shoes, they do provide endurance in every situation. And they will be faithful to carry us on until the day of our Lord. Finally, number four, we must come to church. I finish with this because the other three are enclosed in this final step. Here at church, we hear the gospel of Jesus read aloud as we read along. We hear and we, yep, we fellowship with our brothers and sisters and we pray as we hear others pray along. 
we joined and we praised the same God who united us together and gave us our beloved gospel shoes. Brothers and sisters, allow me to summarize my entire sermon in a brief few minutes. Ephesians 6.15 says, And sandal your feet with a readiness for the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news about how sinful we are and how the almighty God came to redeem us of our sins. It's a gospel of peace because Jesus, the Son of God, by redeeming us of our sins through his death and resurrection, made a way to restore the relationship between God and us and to bring shalom between unrighteous sinners and a holy God. God calls us to put on these gospel shoes in every situation so that they may provide us with the endurance to fight in the battle as we should. And in order to do that, we're looking at God's word, and he shares four ways that we can do this. We read his word, we pray, we join in fellowship, and we gather together as a church. As I conclude, I take us to the scripture reading from this morning, Micah 5. In it, the prophet predicts the coming of Jesus, and I invite you to look at verse 4 with me. He will stand and shepherd them in the strength of the Lord his God. They will live securely, for then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth. And verse 5 begins with, he will be their peace. This prophecy was written about 700 years before Jesus was born. In some ways, we're the same as the people given this prophecy. We are both plagued by sin, fighting the same spiritual enemy, Satan, we have our hope in the same God, and that same God is faithful today as he was then to bring about his word. Yet, we differ because Jesus has been born. He has lived, he has died, he has been resurrected, he has ascended, and all we have to do now is await his return. We're different because we have the gospel. So, beloved church family, praise God for the gospel. Adore the gospel. Share it, trust it, and by all means, by the grace of God, sandal your feet with a readiness for the gospel of peace. Let me pray. Father, almighty Lord God, we come before you today only by your tremendous mercy and grace. Lord, I pray that these words I have proclaimed have above all glorified you, exalted your Son, and been faithful to your holy word. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, that you would write your word on the tablet of our hearts, that you would sandal our feet with the gospel of peace, and that you would, in fact, put upon us the full armor so that we may resist the evil one in this spiritual war. Lord, we ask that you would help keep our eyes upon you, that our hope found in this gospel of peace for eternity in heaven will through the power of the Holy Spirit, help us cast off our sins, lust, pride, covetousness, jealousy, anger, and so many more. That you would sanctify your people for yourself, that you would call your elect to you, and that you would bring forth your kingdom and glory soon. Lord, may all honor and glory be to your name forever and ever throughout eternity. We pray this in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.